Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. It's been a couple of weeks since the U.S. Supreme Court struck down race-conscious admissions practices at selective schools. So what's next? I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. The U.S. Supreme Court has overturned affirmative action, meaning race-conscious admissions programs at selective schools across the country will need to rethink how they operate. So what's next for the future of promoting diversity in higher education? Here to discuss is Oyan Poon, an associate professor of higher ed leadership at Colorado State University and co-author of Rethinking College Admissions, and Anthony Chen, associate professor of sociology at Northwestern. So, Professor Poon, how did we get here? Oh, gosh. Um, How did we get here? Um, So I think it's really important to remember that the person who founded an organization called Students for Fair Admissions, SFFA, his name is Ed Bloom, and he's a white conservative um, anti-civil rights activist. And so for decades, his whole career, he's been trying to roll back civil rights laws, voting rights, the Voting Rights Act he was able to gut. Um, And then he tried to end affirmative action in college admissions in 2016 with Fisher versus University of Texas at Austin. Um, And he realized, and he says this um, very publicly, that he miscast, he racially miscast Abigail Fisher, um, a white woman who didn't get into UT Austin. And he went around the country asking for Asian um, people to come forward. But the thing is, no Asian person came forward to testify that they were harmed by race conscious admissions. And in fact, the majority of Asian Americans support affirmative action. Mm. Are you surprised, Anthony, that the, the Supreme Court decided the way that they did? Well, I, I guess I a little part of me was surprised because two weeks before the UNC and Harvard cases came down, the Supreme Court saved Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And in that decision, uh, Justice Chief Justice Roberts, writing for the majority, said, essentially, um, I don't like Section 2 that much, but the facts of this case and the way it was decided in the trial record doesn't support remaking our jurisprudence anew. And so I thought to myself, huh, well, I, I, I read the Burroughs decision for the Harvard's case, which is a trial court case out mm-hmm. of Massachusetts. I read the Biggs decision out of UNC. And I looked over the, the appeals court decision um, as well, and I thought, well, you know, the trial record uh, also doesn't seem to support remaking our jurisprudence anew in the affirmative action cases. So maybe they will take a narrow approach to limiting affirmative action rather than the more sweeping approach that they did take. So a little part of me was surprised. Mm, yeah. In a majority opinion by Chief Justice John Roberts, he said, quote, the systems in place, quote, lack sufficiently focused and measurable objectives warranting the use of race, unavoidably employ race in a negative manner, involve racial stereotyping, and lack meaningful endpoints. Those admissions programs cannot be reconciled with the guarantees of the Equal Protection Clause. That's right. Um, You know, uh, even though Chief Justice Roberts is the the one penning the opinion, uh, opinion, there's a bit of legal ventriloquism going on here because a lot of the points he makes are points that um, Alito and Thomas made in either concurrences or dissents in prior affirmative action cases that came before the court. 
Uh, and so e even though his name is on it, even though he tries to write it with his typical stylistic flourishes, um, a lot of what he says are, are points that were made in the past by uh, the, two, the two other justices. Professor Poon, can you tell us more about the role that Asian Americans played in this fight? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, Ed Bloom really used Asian Americans as uh, racial imagery and stereotypes of high achievement among Asian Americans to push forward this idea that race-conscious admissions harmed Asian Americans when, in fact, it did not. There is no empirical evidence to suggest that. Um, and But at the same time, there were um, small segments, a minority of, um, of Asian Americans, predominantly Chinese American, um, wealthier, middle-class uh, immigrant Chinese Americans who were making a very loud stink over um, these policies, um, but they don't represent the majority of Asian Americans. And unfortunately, then Ed Bloom was able to use that image um, to promote this idea that affirmative action was actually racist when it is not. It is actually a policy that promotes diversity and equity and values and affirms um, the diversity of our identities, our experiences, and pushes forward opportunity for everyone. So, Professor Chen, when we say race can't be considered during the admissions process, what does that actually look like? Well, the ruling is, uh, you know, a, a bit complicated in terms of how uh, it, it tries to create like a bit of a loophole for the consideration of race. The way that universities uh, have been considering a race up until this point, which is through a holistic individualized review where race is one of many factors and can act, act as a plus on the uh, an admissions decision, that can't be done anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, in towards the very end of the chief justice's majority opinion, uh, it does seem like it's okay for applicants to talk about their race in their application essays and talk about how it's affected their lives, how they might have overcome some barriers as a result of their race. And so the Supreme Court says it's okay for universities to consider this information as long as it's considered uh, as a, a way of uh, making an assessment of the applicant's character or, or their abilities that might contribute something to the, the incoming class. So race can be considered in that way, but in other ways, uh, the ways that it had been uh, been used uh, up until the last up until like two weeks ago, it can no longer be used that way. So, having diverse communities in selective schools, I mean, that's what we know affirmative action was aiming to create. What's your sense of how successful it was in doing so, Professor Poon? Yeah, I mean, it was absolutely necessary. It was very successful. Um, I'm hearing so many people tell their stories. Right. I mean, this is I, how I got into Harvard. This is how I got into college and graduate yeah. school, too. It played a role. It played an important role in who I am today. It's um, absolutely, you could even argue that the women and the people of color on the Supreme Court itself um, <laughs> came about, that composition came about yeah. due to affirmative action in considering Right. The diversity of the court, recognizing that our country is a diverse place in society and democracy. And if we want to have a multiracial democracy that acknowledges that diversity, we need to consider these issues. Um, and yeah, so I think that there are still things that colleges can do. Um, and um, I hope that colleges and universities will not cower away from things that they can do. Let's talk about that. And I, I do want to hear from, from both of you. With affirmative action gone, 
how can universities continue to promote diversity in their institutions? That's the big question. Right. Yeah. I mean, so you can look at California as an example, right? California passed an affirmative action ban in 1996 that went into effect in 98. I was actually a college administrator in the early 2000s in the University of California system, and I was an admissions reader as well. And so to Tony's point about this, the Supreme Court ruling saying students can still write about who they are, and they should continue to write about who they are and their whole stories. What I, as an admissions reader, was allowed to do was to then think about students' stories, their individual stories to say, does this represent a story of leadership? Does it represent a story of persistence? What never felt satisfactory to me as an admissions reader, though, was that notions of persistence, say, a student who was, you know, talks about a story about going through a discriminatory experience and how that has inspired them to, you know, lead in different ways— Sure, I could call that a persistence and leadership story, but it never felt fully satisfactory to capture the wholeness mm. of the humanity of that story. At the same time, universities and, and California, what we did was aggressive recruitment, right? And so California has, you know, they saw an immediate dip, particularly in indigenous, black and Latinx student um, admission rates. However, they've been able to get really aggressive and think about new ways and creative ways to do it. So nothing in the Supreme Court ruling says that you can't aggressively recruit. So you think that that will continue then? That has to. I hope so. But I am seeing signs of universities backing off of it, right? So for example, Western Illinois just took off their diversity, equity, and inclusion scholarship. I saw that. Yeah. So you know, it just they, magically disappeared. It just disappeared. But their legacy scholarship continues and legacies are children of alumni. And those populations continue to remain extremely white, predominantly white. Um, so that's hmm. not something that they needed to do. Hmm. Professor Chen, weigh in here. What, what, what else can universities continue to do here? How are they going to promote diversity? Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, recruitment is probably the way that it'll go forward, but it's sort of difficult to forecast what's really going to happen in the, the medium term here. But we do have the historical experience of California, which played out exactly as Professor Punted. Um, we also have the experience of the University of Michigan. But now we have a nationwide ban on affirmative action. And part of what's going to happen is that schools, you know, the, the application sending behavior of students of different racial backgrounds yeah. is going to change. So Asian Americans are pretty aggressive about sending their applications all over the place. They may get even more aggressive. So it may be the case that the rejection rates are higher at extremely selective schools because suddenly a lot of Asian American applicants think, finally, I'm going to get a fair shake. On the other hand, it may be the case that applications from black and Latinx students and indigenous students may fall, and they may fall exactly at the schools that uh, you know can stand to lose them the least and so, uh, you know, so there could be, uh, you know, um, a lot of drastic changes. Um, on the other hand, school, schools that are able to spend the money that they need to on these recruiting programs, which are not cheap, may be able to stave off a total breakdown of their mm-hmm. diversity. Whereas schools that don't have that much money, who don't have the, the resources to devote, uh, to recruitment are 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 going to suffer the 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 worst effects, and yeah. so and that's going to map onto the status hierarchy of higher education in fairly you know expected ways. Schools with larger endowments that are more highly selective that get a lot of applications no matter what, 
may be able to do better than schools that are lower on down on the on the status hierarchy with with fewer resources, smaller endowments, and yeah. less interest on the part of all students. So, as a professor now, your your former life. Uh, working in admissions, uh, what kind of a recruitment do you think works? And what resources are needed to make sure that it works? Right. So we know from research that a lot of colleges and universities, unfortunately, they recruit at whiter high schools and wealthier high schools because over the last several decades, there's been a public divestment from higher education, so they need to find revenue elsewhere. So the tuition dollars matter to keeping the lights on and paying our salaries as faculty. Um, and so, unfortunately, they're recruiting mostly at whiter and wealthier high schools. They can diversify that. Policymakers need to think about funding higher education at better rates and solving this affordability crisis um, that we have right now in higher education as well. Um so I think that there's a lot of things that can be done and they just universities should not be cowering right now. They should be thinking, learning lessons from Michigan, from California and getting aggressive with recruitment, but also thinking in new ways, right, about how admissions is done. I think um, I was telling Professor Chen earlier that we often assume that college admissions and college going has to be the way it's always been done. And that's yeah. not true. We can think creatively. There's direct admissions in Idaho. Um, other states have different creative ways of thinking about bringing in students from across the state. So do you think it's possible there could be a trickle-down effect from, from schools to the workplace? Yes, unfortunately. I mean, even just thinking about if higher education is about knowledge production, sciences, technology, engineering, that those are all sectors that are going to suffer. Um, ironically, of course, the Supreme Court ruling said, oh, the ban on affirmative action doesn't affect the military academies. Um, so they <laughs> accepted yes. that, right? So it's interesting or disturbing or both to think yeah, about. They were exempt exempted. They were exempted, the right? So if we know that the military sector and our national security benefits from a diverse workforce, military uh, ranks and leadership, we can benefit as a country across sectors with a diverse workforce and leadership. Yeah. We're going to suffer as a country, unfortunately, I think, in losing out on the wisdom that comes and perspectives and creativity and talent. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, what's next, Professor Chen? What, what are you going to be watching out for as we wrap here? Well, in the very short term, I'm going to be very interested in taking a look at the guidance that the Biden administration is going to issue through the Department of Justice and the, the Department of Edu Education. They have civil rights units, and they typically collaborate on memoranda after decision like this to let schools know exactly what they can do uh, or try to do uh, that would be within within the law. Yeah. Um, I, I was just speaking with, uh, with Professor Poon earlier, and she it sounds like uh, she, she's going to be uh, part of that meeting, which which is wonderful. Great. So in the very short term, look out for some news articles about uh, what the Biden administration is specifically guiding. That will tell us, I think, a lot about what we should expect to see in the medium term. Anthony Chen is Associate Professor of Sociology at Northwestern University, and Oyen Poon is an Associate Professor of Higher Education Leadership at Colorado State University and co-author of Rethinking College Admissions. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. 
This episode of Reset was produced by Micah Yason, and it was edited by Daniel Tucker and Ethan Schwab. Keep up with this story and more by making sure that you're subscribed to our podcast. We share episodes every morning and afternoon, Monday through Friday, with a bonus episode on Saturdays. That'll do it for this morning. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. I'll talk to you again this afternoon. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.